scripture reading for this morning is from Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 52. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as a... Against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, if you were here last week, you'll remember that we uh, looked at, on the one hand, Jesus' foretelling that uh, Peter and uh, the, the disciples, the remaining disciples, by then Judas had departed, but Jesus said, you, Peter, the 11, you know, you're all going to fall away. And of course, Peter was adamant, I will never fall away, never, I mean, re repudiating Jesus. Jesus, you've got it wrong. You don't know me like I know me, Jesus. That was Peter last week. And then we also, we jumped down and we, we looked at, uh, reference back to, I should say, Judas. Judas at the Last Supper, whom Jesus said is the one who would betray him. And we introduced last week the idea of apostasy. That here is Judas who had apostatized. He had turned away completely from Jesus, never to return. And we asked the question last week, what was it that made Judas's turning away terminal but Peter's turning away only temporary. I inter introduced that last week. We're going to come back to that this week as we look at this passage, as we consider Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll come back to that in my third point. And I hope that what the Lord will do in you 
this morning is what he's been doing in me over the course of this whole week, which is really forcing me to, in a way, uh, read this passage, this account of what happened in the garden, in a sense, with fresh eyes. By God's grace, it struck me in a way that it hasn't in a long time. And I'm just praying that, that to whatever degree God chooses to work, to open our eyes, to see afresh uh, the reality of what was happening in the garden. So we'll look at that when we get to the, the end of the service and the third point. But on the way there, what I want to do is wrestle with this idea of apostasy some more. You see, we, we hear Judas, and we automatically think of the extreme, right? The extreme example of someone who you would think it was obvious all along the direction that he would go. But no one at this point in the passage, when Judas was called out earlier in Mark 14, no one said we knew it all along. When Jesus said that Judas would be the one, no one was saying, well, we, we saw that one coming. And I would venture to say that at the beginning of his walking with Jesus, Judas didn't see that coming. I can't imagine that Judas started out in his walk with Jesus, following him in the way of the cross, being called to take up his cross and follow him, and responding by continuing on, actually going out as part of the 12 to do ministry and see people being healed and demons cast out. I highly doubt that Judas started out thinking, you know what, I'm just biding my time. My hunch, as we read elsewhere in the Gospels, that is, Judas was known as one who was the treasurer and always skimming off the top, my hunch is that what happened with Judas is what happens with so many of those who apostatize. It isn't as if they suddenly decide, I no longer want anything to do with Jesus. It is a slow, downward slope that ends in destruction. And so we need to hear the warning. Because I think one of the things that we need to recognize at the core of what the Bible says about apostasy is that no one sees it coming. And so Jesus warns Peter and James and John in this passage. We see the end result in Judas. Scriptures as a whole throughout the New Testament especially give us warnings concerning apostasy. And so I hope as we hear this sermon, as you hear this sermon, as I preach this sermon, I hope that you don't sit there thinking, that could never be me. Because Scripture doesn't give us that out. I also hope that what you'll feel a little bit this morning is that tension that exists in the Scriptures between, on the one hand, the confidence that those who truly belong to Jesus will persevere because of God's pledge to preserve them to the end. And yet, at the same time, there is this call on the human responsibility side of things to heed the warning, to stay awake. And so that's where we're going to head this morning. We're going to look first at the path to apostasy. I'm picking up on something I introduced last week. We're going to look first at the path to apostasy. Second, we're going to consider the road to redemption. And then finally, we're going to end by considering the grace in the garden. The path to apostasy, the road to redemption, and the grace in the garden. But first, let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we do ask as we come to you this morning that you would be working in our hearts. Oh Lord, for those of us who are sleepy, spiritually, Lord, all of us are wrestling with fatigue uh, for various reasons, and, and many of them, many of them very good reasons. But Lord, for all of us where we struggle with spiritual slumber, would you give reviving this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So first the, path, first, the path to apostasy. And again, what is apostasy? I defined it last week uh, from the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. The, 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 the uh, dictionary definition is this, a deliberate repudiation and abandonment of the faith that one has professed. A deliberate repudiation and abandonment of the faith that one has pr- professed. And of course, exhibit A uh, is Judas. Now look at verse 43 with me for a second. Verse 43 says, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12. This is not the first time that Mark highlights the fact that Judas was one of the 12. Judas was numbered among those who were closest to Jesus. In other words, let me say again, there are no likely candidates for apostasy. There are are warnings concerning the path that leads to apostasy, but if, if the disciples could hear Jesus say, one of you will betray me, and every one of them not say, finally, Judas is outed, but rather say, is it me, Lord? You remember that, right? That's what they said. Is it me, Lord? Then even they at the Last Supper recognized, it could be me. What is an apostate? I love the way Michael Kruger, uh, a pastor and um, theologian, professor at Westminster, no, Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, uh, at a recent Gospel Coalition conference on apostasy, defined an apostate, someone who is an apostate, in this way. Very simple and helpful definition. Someone who was once on the inside, who is now on the outside. And what he means by that is once on the inside of the visible church, and is now on the outside. They've repudiated it. They've turned away. On the inside of the visible church, someone who probably baptized, probably taking communion, probably using their gifts, perhaps serving in ministry, maybe a pastor. Someone who would appear, based on their profession and their commitments, to be a believer, maybe part of a small group, faithfully attending a growth group. Once on the inside, but now on the outside. They have left the church. They have rejected Christianity. Sometimes that can look like a very stark and clear and, 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 and you know, verbal and public. That's one of the things that's you know, happening right now. There's this whole exvangelical movement in which it's almost a badge of honor to give your testimony about how you've rejected Christianity. Sometimes it can simply look like a life that is no longer uh, in any way reflecting what it means to be godly. There's still, yes, I'm a Christian, yes, I'm a Christian. I said I was a Christian when I was, you know, eight. Sure, I'm a Christian, and yet no interest in church and no interest in living a godly life. John warns us of this in 1 John 2.19. John says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And so what 
John is saying there is here we are as a church. Here's these group of people who were once of us. They were here. They were part of the church. They've left us, and in their leaving, they have demonstrated that they're never actually part of us to begin with in the sense that they were not actually followers of Jesus Christ. An apostate is someone who was once on the inside but is now on the outside, once part of the visible church but has left it, someone who once appeared to follow Christ but has rejected Jesus. Now why emphasize what it means to be an apostate? And it's important that we do so so that we remember what an apostate is not. A non-Christian isn't an apostate or simply a non-Christian. A struggling Christian, someone who is feeling very weak in their faith, someone who is maybe for a season given over to a sin, a besetting sin, is, is wrestling and falling more than they're succeeding, struggling to believe that there's a God who loves them and accepts them in Jesus Christ, but finds themselves tripping. That is not an apostate. That is a weak and struggling Christian who ought to feel like he or she has a home in the visible church. No, an apostate is someone who has said, I want nothing to do with Jesus. I want nothing to do with his people. I want nothing to do with his church. I once did, but now I don't. I was once on the inside, but I am out. That's apostasy. Now, how does one end up an apostate? Is there a path to apostasy? Even though you might say there are no, I think rightfully, there are no likely candidates is there some discernible path that could lead to apostasy? And I think the answer is yes. I think there are two uh, things that we ought to consider this morning. First, the path to apostasy in your heart. But I think for those of us who have kids in our home still, we need to think about the path to apostasy in our home. So the path to apostasy in your heart. Eric Raymond is a pastor, author, and blogger. He said this concerning um, the path to apostasy. He put it this way. This is such a good quote. The road to apostasy is paved by bricks of apathy toward Christ. The road to apostasy is paved by bricks of apathy toward Christ. And then in this article of his that, that I read, he outlines, he kind of goes through three bricks. The brick of neglect, the brick of indifference, and the brick of frustration, the brick of neglect. And by that, he means neglecting the means of grace, neglecting the worship service, neglecting reading your Bible, coming before the scriptures with a heart open toward God and a readiness to speak to God in prayer, neglecting the fellowship of the saints, Neglecting the means by which Christians experience the grace that is theirs in Jesus. Neglect. It's the first prick in the apathy, heart of it, this apathetic toward Christ. Second brick he points to is that of indifference. Indifference to the wickedness of sin. Indifference to the glory of Christ. Indifference to the hope of heaven. Neglect begets indifference, which then leads to frustration. 
On the one hand, you have a, a, a real but waning desire to follow Jesus, to, to, to live a life that conforms to that of Scripture. But neglect has begat indifference. Your mind is distracted. Your, your heart is cold. And at some point, you begin to ask, have I just been faking it? Is there anything real here at all? Three bricks, neglect, indifference, and frustration. The road to apostasy is paved by bricks of apathy toward Jesus. Last week, third point, was the importance of keeping the heart. Keep the heart. It's being reinforced here. Neglecting the heart. Discounting the importance of having the affections set on Christ puts one in grave peril when it comes to apostasy. The path in your heart, but then the path in your home. Jared Wilson, former pastor, author, and blogger, wrote an article titled, How to Disciple Your Kids into Church Dropout Status. So disciple used in a tongue-in-cheek way. How to disciple your kids into church dropout status. He pulls a quote, I'm sorry, a stat from a recent LifeWay study that says that the church, listen, the church dropout rate for young adults is around 70%. Look around. Think about the kids that you know that attend this church or other churches. And then think that basically three out of four are going to fall out. He gives some, uh, a pathway, if you will. He, tend, he gives some things that if you really, you know, again, tug-in-cheek, here, here are surefire ways to disciple your kids into church dropout status. The first, attend church, you know, sporadically. Just come whenever it's convenient. Second, insulate them from the rest of the church body, right? You know, I'll put you in the age-appropriate thing so that you can hang out with people your own age, but I'm not going to make any effort to make sure, for instance, as a youth, you're engaged with the adults of the church, or as a child, you're engaged with the youth or the adults of the church. Third, ignore their questions. We talked about this a little bit last week. When I asked those who were going through or feel like they were going through a deconversion process, I asked the question, are you asking your questions in isolation? And I said then, that may be more on us than it is on you. Are we as a church doing what Scripture commands, which is to show mercy to those that doubt? That's in Jude 22, I believe. And in our homes, are we willing to create a place where our children can ask questions? Fourth, church hop. Hey, what a great way to reinforce the consumerism that plagues Western culture. And then fifth, marginalize the gospel. Elevate rule-keeping over love for Jesus. These are surefire ways to disciple your children out of the church. He says this, the epicenter of influence on kids turning to or turning away from the church is in the Christian home. The epicenter of influence on kids turning to or away from the church is in the Christian home. Parents, we need to feel the weight of that. 
Second, the road to redemption. Now, by road to redemption, what I am not saying is this is how you redeem yourself. What I am saying is here are ways to realign with the work of redemption that God is doing. I'm also, please hear me say this, I'm also saying that no one is too far gone. No one who is apostatizing need die in their apostasy. As long as there is breath in your lungs or in your friend or loved one's lungs who has repudiated Christ, repudiated the gospel, wants nothing to do with the church, there is hope. You are not beyond the reach of God's grace. How could they be? And so pray. If you have a loved one who is in that place, you are. But think about those who have turned away and pray. Devote yourself to praying for them. Share, share this sermon with them. Five encouragements from this text to help us realign with God's road to redemption. First, heed the warnings. Heed the warnings. They're here in this text. Look back at verse uh, 27. Uh, we read this last week. Jesus said to them, his disciples, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But then look to our text for this morning. Look at verse 38. Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So on the one hand, Jesus is saying, you're all going to fall away. This is according to scripture. And yet he still says to them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You see that in this text. You see it throughout scripture. I'm just going to read a couple First uh, Timothy 1.19, Peter, I'm sorry, Paul talks about those who have rejected the faith and by rejecting faith and a good conscience have made shipwreck of their faith. First Timothy 1.19, 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. That's a warning. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10.26-27 to 27, says this, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. In other words, if you know the way of salvation is in Jesus Christ, if you reject that way of salvation, there is no other way of salvation. Implication, don't turn from the one and only way of salvation. Or if you have, turn back to it. Why? Why, are, why these warning passages? It is not to um, cause a genuine believer to worry that they could lose their salvation. It is to cause believers to take seriously their walk with the Lord. To not presume upon our relationship with the Lord. Genuine Christians will respond to those warning passages. And how do we respond? We respond by repenting and turning away from our sin and returning to the Lord. So first, heed the warning. Second, admit your weakness. Look at verse 38 with me. Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, who's he saying that to? Is he saying it to the 11? No. 
He's saying that to Peter, James, and John. He took Peter, James, and John apart from the remaining disciples. He went off a few yards, you know, that we could estimate from them. But to Peter, James, and John, he says, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. What do we know about Peter, James, and John? We know that James and John, back in Mark chapter 10, said, we can drink the cup that you're going to drink. And we know that just like, you know, what, an hour previously, Peter had said, I'll never fall away. Jesus has pulled these three aside and he's saying, guys, you're weak. Like, I know you mean well. The spirit is willing. And he's talking about our own spirit, just, you know, that own desire that we have to obey. But the flesh is weak. Your sin nature in you will overpower you. Pray that that won't happen. This is good news. This really is good news. Jesus is not saying in this passage, watch and pray for me. He's saying, watch and pray for you. When he says, watch and pray, he's not saying, I want you to keep a lookout for Judas, lest he show up. Jesus knows Judas is coming. And he's not saying, pray for me. He's not, he's not saying, pray that I won't enter into temptation. He's saying, watch and pray that you won't enter into temptation. So Jesus is saying to these guys who thought they were so strong, guys, you're weak. Watch and pray for yourself. And then Jesus, who is agonizing in prayer, comes three times to check on them. How are you guys doing? Remember you're weak. Keep praying for yourself that you won't enter into temptation. Keep praying. I know your heart is inclined toward wanting to obey me, but your flesh is weak. Keep praying. And then comes back and checks on them. In other words... Grace is for the weak. The only people who receive God's grace are those who come in their weakness. What frees you to admit your weakness? It's knowing that behind the warnings about persevering in the faith, there is the promise that God will preserve his own. We are only and ever saved by grace and grace alone. Jesus said in John chapter 6, all that the Father has given me will come to me, and none that the Father has given me will I ever cast away. Jesus in John chapter 10 said, I lay down my life for my sheep, and no one can snatch my sheep out of my hands. Paul in Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. As we seek to persevere, as we seek to heed the warnings, we can gladly admit our weakness because we don't save ourselves. We entrust ourselves wholeheartedly to the only one who can save us. Heed the warnings, admit your weakness. Third, check your spiritual pulse. Check your spiritual pulse. Look at verse 40. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer them. What to answer him? What a passage. You've, been, you've had that happen, right? You wake up. I think this happened yesterday. I woke up thinking it was Friday. And for me, it's like, you know, when it's earlier in the week than I thought, that's always a good thing because Sundays are coming. 
Right? So I woke up, I was like, oh, it's Friday. Oh, it's Saturday. You know, you're kind of foggy. Where am I? What's going on? This is what was happening to them physically, but also I think spiritually, because this was a very intense spiritual moment for them. It happens to us physically. It's happening to some of you right now, by the way. But it happens to all of us spiritually. We find ourselves in a stupor. We need to check our spiritual pulse. Where am I? How am I doing? Is there fruit being born in my life? Is there some besetting sin that I've just gotten blind to? I'm not even seeing it anymore. Scripture encourages us to do this. Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. This is a call from Scripture to check your spiritual pulse. Heed the warnings, admit your weakness, check your pulse. Fourth, stay awake. Stay awake. John chapter, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 13, at the end of that teaching about the end of the age, uh, about the, the suffering that would come for those who follow Jesus, Jesus ends that teaching in Mark 13, 37 by saying this, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. To Peter, James, and John, he says, are you still sleeping? Verse 38, again, tells us to watch out for temptation. Don't succumb to it. Pray that you won't. Stay awake. Keep watch. Peter would later say in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Don't say on the basis of your track record with Jesus that that would never be you. Continue to come to Jesus with nothing in your hands but your need and dependence upon his grace each and every day. Then you can rest in assurance. Heed the warnings, admit your weakness, check your pulse, stay awake. And then my fifth encouragement that I think we have from this text is actually going to be my third point. So we're going to end with this. And that is remember the grace in the garden. Remember the grace in the garden. The text tells us that they are heading to the garden. They end up in a place called uh, Gethsemane. It's in verse 32. Gethsemane is an olive orchard. It was... At the foot of the Mount of Olives, it was one of many olive orchards that were there. It was one that had an olive press, and so Gethsemane means olive press. It was, it was one of those places. It's a familiar place. They're able to reference it. They went there, and Jesus was completely undone. Verse 33 tells us, that Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. That word troubled means horrified. Verse 34, just read the translation we have. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. 
Have you ever been so sad that you thought you were going to die? And then verse 35, and this was the text that just hit me this week. Verse 35, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground. So here is our Savior who's distressed, anxious, horrified, sorrowful, and in his anxiety, horror, and sorrow, he falls to the ground. I've never fallen to the ground in horror or sorrow or agony. I've never seen anyone do that. I mean, maybe I've seen it in a movie, but that's just an actor, right? I have never seen that. Maybe you have. Maybe you've been there. But this is Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. He's so overwhelmed, he falls down under the weight of it. So what is it? What, what is it that caused him to fall down? Was it just the fact that now it's about to happen, right? He's been talking about his death. He's been saying, this is what's going to happen. Guys, be prepared. They weren't listening. But he was saying, this is exactly what's going to happen. And it was all unfolding exactly like he had said. But is this kind of like, you know, literally the 11th hour, I'm on the verge of it, and now it's hit him. Is that what's happening here? And I think the answer is no. And the reason why is because of what Jesus prays will pass from him. He does not pray, oh, Father, may it be that this cross passes from me. He prays, oh, Father, may it be that the cup passes from me. The cup. The cup was a reference to God's judgment, his holy wrath poured out on sin. You see that through the Old Testament. Jesus prays that that cup would pass from him. In the garden, Jesus did not get a a view of the agony that he would soon experience on the cross. He got a view in the garden of the agony that he would experience when he cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I love the way William Lane puts it in his commentary. Lane says this, Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal. Now just think about that. I hadn't thought about that. Jesus has gone frequently to prayer. He's brought his disciples with them, his disciples with them, with him. He's had them stay. He's gone up on the mountain. He's prayed for the express purpose of having fellowship with his Father. Lane makes that connection. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven opened up before him, and he staggered. The cup represents the wrath of God that was opened up before Jesus. And because he prayed, not my will, but your will be done, the cup represents to us the grace in the garden. Jesus drank the cup. Jesus drank the cup. He took what we deserve so we can have what only he deserves. Grace, mercy, forgiveness, eternal life, the great exchange. 
My sin for Christ's righteousness has begun in the garden. I love that song that uh, we sang earlier, that song from Keith and Kristen Getty. What took him to this wretched place, what kept him on this road, his love for Adam's cursed race. For every broken soul, no sin too slight to overlook, no crime too great to carry, all mingled in this poisoned cup, and yet he drank it all. Next week, we are going to reflect on the glory of Christ. Let's not neglect reflecting on his groaning, on his suffering. This is the second time that something significant took place in a garden, right? You remember the Garden of Eden? In the Garden of Eden, Adam said to his father, not your will, but my will be done. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the second Adam, Jesus, said not my will, but your will be done. And the road to redemption for every sinner, including those on the path to apostasy, is opened through the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would help us take to heart what this passage teaches us. Lord, for my friends, for those I know and love who have turned away, and for the friends and family of those represented in this room who have turned away, oh God, would you rescue them? Would you call them back to yourself? Would you incline their heart towards you? And Lord, for those of us who are sitting here this morning and perhaps a little too comfortable, I pray that your spirit would prick our consciences. I pray that we would not presume upon your favor. I pray that on the one hand, we would rest in your grace, knowing that you will preserve all those who are your own. But would you at the same time, oh God, work in us through the warning passages, a zeal to live for your glory and your glory alone. And I ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.